Hello and welcome again to the famous CFC podcast where each episode offers a deep dive into Chelsea's remarkable history. My name's Gary Brown and I'm joined as usual by club historian Rick Glanville. Hello mate. How you doing Rick? Now today we have an Armistice Day Remembrance Special looking at how Chelsea Football Club was affected by the 1914-18 war, mm-hmm. the so-called war to end all wars. In a while, we hear from ex-Man City player Paul Lake telling the story of his great-uncle George, who played for Chelsea and was killed in a battle just before the ceasefire. But first, I think a lot of listeners will be unaware of some of the fascinating other World War I-related tales that we have to tell. Ah, I think I think you're right, Gary. And it is a tragic but also intriguing period in the club's history. Um, some of the things involving us are quite unique. And we'll reveal how football carried on despite the bloodshed what Chelsea did to convince volunteers to join up and how the club tried to boost the morale of those enduring awful conditions in the trenches. Well, it's been a long tradition that on the match closest to 11 November, football clubs commemorate the 1918 armistice that brought an end to the death and destruction of World War I. It has, and we've just had that at Stamford Bridge. And Chelsea do this very well. I mean, usually involving the Chelsea pensioners from down the road at the Royal hospital you know the veterans home with the scarlet jackets they've took part as always and it represents a moment of quiet contemplation just before the game kicks off with that massive roar of release yeah so let's go back to the beginning Chelsea kicked off as usual in Division 1 on the 5th of September 1914 Mm -hmm. but Britain had already declared war on Germany a month earlier on the 4th of August yeah And the clarion call from the British establishment had already gone up to recruit 100,000 volunteer fighters um, to take part in the World War. Um, With the profile of these wanted men, it was mostly men, naturally fitting the young and fit people typically playing or watching professional football. But the game carried on for a whole season in fact, while the war was going, um, even after the first major casualty lists from France and Belgium, from the trenches, started to be published in October and November 1914. There must have been immense moral pressure put on football clubs from the government and the military authorities. Oh, and some. Uh, There was, um, largely through the newspapers, which was the mass medium and social media of the day, um, and they raged against, fo- against football, saying it should close down, uh, show your dignity and support for the war, close down while the war was being waged, and demanding that the young men involved uh, should join the fight. But a lot of the criticism was really unfair, um, and Chelsea led the way in fighting back uh, against this criticism. And, um, and in fact, the club had already shown a really superb initiative by helping refugees from occupied Belgium who'd come, who'd fled to Britain and settled in the Fulham area, um, paying for accommodation and raising funds for food and clothing for these refugees. But the piece in the Times on the 23rd of November 1914 was typical mm-hmm. of many published at the time, which were intended to shame football and supporters for carrying on. <laughs> yes, what a carry on. Um, this article really angered the Chelsea directors. 
um, basically it said there's a there's apparently something about the professional football match spectator which makes a recruiting appeal a failure. And he singled out Stamford Bridge for criticism, saying a Colonel Byrne, Member of Parliament in Britain, uh, had addressed the crowd uh, before kickoff. But recruiting sergeant said not one man was induced to join. Well, Chelsea absolutely refuted this insinuation. And in the matchday programme, the Chelsea Chronicle, they published a photo of a recent crowd showing, proving that virtually all present were in a uniform. So Chelsea supporters had joined up despite what the Times said. Yeah, not only that, but the Chelsea FC Chronicle, the club matchday programme, was inundated with letters from servicemen saying they supported football carrying on. For example, a, a private AC Dorsets of the um, 2nd Battalion Yorkshire Regiment wrote to the programme, as a Chelseaite, I love that phrase, I might start using it, my brother sends me the Chelsea FC Chronicle every week. So this is a, a soldier who was, whose brother was sending him the matchday programme from Stamford Bridge uh, every week. I think I am only voicing the option of the large majority of this battalion when I say, carry on with football, if only for the pleasure and interest it gives to us chaps doing our bit. Uh, good luck to the grand game of soccer and all who play. And another uh, letter in the programme from a Joseph Sale of Kensington read, who begrudges us our football? It's not the Tommy himself. No, it's the killjoys and amateur strategists who are always with us. Uh, Tommy, of course, was short for Tommy Atkins, which was the nickname of the kind of generic British um, soldier. Mind you, mud still sticks though, doesn't it? So how did Chelsea respond? Well, apart from publishing all these letters, uh, another initiative was to take a leading role in launching a new footballers battalion, uh, the 17th Middlesex, which comprised of footballers and others. So you didn't have to be a footballer to join, but it helped. Um, and by February 1919, it was reported that Chelsea had already obtained more recruits for the footballers battalion um, than any other league club. And our club secretary, Bert Palmer, was its honorary recruiting officer. And the fact is, Supporters wanted to fight shoulder to shoulder in the footballers' battalion with the heroes they watched um, week in, week out. Uh, and among them was, um, I'm sorry, it's a topic we'll come back to, but Jimmy Ridley, who was football's first ever ball boy, who was a child in 1905 when the club was founded, um, fetched the ball from behind Willie Falk's goal. But he wanted to serve in the 17th Middlesex with his Chelsea heroes, and that's what he did. Okay, but that makes it sound a bit like the 17th was a bit of a celebrity battalion just for show. But did they have to face the same dire conditions as everyone else? Well, unfortunately, yes. This is no easy street for celebrity footballers. Um, the 17th Middlesex fought at the Somme and suffered many casualties, including former Chelsea goal, goalie um, Bob Pompom Whiting. Pompom was his nickname. Um, he was. It's really sad story, actually. Um, he had left Chelsea, but he, he joined up the 17th Middlesex. He was injured in battle, came back for recuperation to England, uh, but was really affected mentally and absconded to see his beloved wife. And um, presumably suffering from PTSD, was discovered, captured, sent back to the front, clearly mentally unwell, where he was uh, killed, tragically. 
um, Jimmy Ridley, by the way, the ball boy I just mentioned, um, he spent 18 months as a prisoner of war. Uh, and of course, the other thing is uh, one of our star players, England's centre forward, Jack Woodward, was wounded. So it was certainly not um, uh, a place, you know, it wasn't uh, feet up and uh, cigar and slippers. Yeah, certainly not just exhibition kickabouts to raise morale behind the front line then. No, no. Actually, it's funny you should mention kickabouts because that brings us to another special contribution that Chelsea led the way on, which was announced in the Chelsea Chronicle for Notts County's visit on the 21st of November. Join the army, said the notice board. From the Chelsea Chronicle, the 21st of November, 1914. We have already referred to the fact that right from the commencement of the season, we have been supplying footballs to various regiments and that the applications are coming in daily. Already our outlay for footballs has exceeded the total for the whole of last season and still there are scores of battalions looking to Chelsea for one of these indispensable articles of equipment. It has therefore been decided that the whole of the weekly collection made by our lady helpers on the occasion of our Sheffield Wednesday match, Saturday the 5th of December, shall be devoted to this object. Chelsea Chronicle, 5th of December, 1914. The whole of today's bucket collection will be devoted to the purchase of footballs and in one or two cases, outfits for our gallant Tommies. Already we have nearly 50 applications from various regiments, so when the boxes come round, do your bit for the boys who are doing their bit for you. Chelsea Chronicle, 9th of January, 1915. Hundreds of footballs have been sent to our brave lads at the front, but many appear to have been of poor quality, for the casualties amongst footballs have been exceedingly heavy. In more than one instance, we read of a couple of balls being burst in a single game behind the firing line. It may safely be assumed that none of these were sent out by Chelsea, for each one of the 50 balls dispatched by us were of the best quality only, equal to those used in league competitions at home. Has someone been palming off old stock on the well-meaning but inexperienced buyers? I love how Chelsea emphasised the quality of our footballs and a little dig back at the papers with their cheapo suppliers. Yeah. Uh, do we know how the footballs were received and used? Well, we have some reports, again, in, the, in the, the Chelsea Chronicle of the day, and we know that at least 50 good quality footballs uh, were sent off to the battlefront and the recipients were absolutely delighted. We know they were used uh, because they sent letters uh, describing uh, in what circumstances they were playing, using them and playing games and things. Uh, and in fact, the 8th Battalion of the East Surrey Regiment went into battle kicking footballs. Wow. Um, it was quite a famous incident uh, in 19... I think it's July 1916. So that's shortly after these footballs had been supplied to the front. And we know that Chelsea sent one football to the 5th battalion of that regiment and who knows whether it uh, was kicked too far and went into a different trench and ended up with the the fifth rather than the eighth um but one recipient 
uh, a private C.S. Dewar of the Fifth Royal Berkshires wrote to the Chronicle saying, many thanks for the football. Not even six inches of mud will stop us from using it, which is pr- quite picturesque, isn't it? Six inches of mud. These are the conditions they were having to put up with. Uh, another one, Sergeant C.A. Watts said, on behalf of the NCOs, that's not non-commissioned officers, and men of F Company, 25th City of London Regiment, uh, the majority of whom are from Chelsea and neighbourhood, I thank you for the football. Whenever we use it, we will think of the boys in blue who so kindly provided it. Um, so these are testimonials to the how important for morale that donation was and i have to say it's very tempting to think that one or two may have been used in the famous christmas truce matches uh, that took place spontaneously on 25th of december 1914 in no man's land between the two sets of trenches uh, british and german it's a wonderful thought isn't it it is anyway we know that many soldiers asked the club to send copies of the chelsea program which they read avidly many times and probably passed up and down the trenches so mm-hmm. football was offering relief from the death and squalor abroad so what about the season itself at home <laughs> yeah that's a, well in the league it didn't go well at all for, for chelsea in fact we ended up in a relegation position but as we heard in one of our previous podcasts that was because of a fixed match between Manchester United and Liverpool. And Chelsea were eventually reinstated in 1919 on the basis of that corruption. But in the Cup, it was totally different. And with classic Chelsea contrariness in this most unusual of seasons and the backdrop of war, we beat Everton 2-0 in the FA Cup semi-final at Villa Park in March 1915 and clinched our first ever Cup final. That's less than 10 years um, after we were founded. And like it would happen today, lots of supporters, despite war restrictions, travelled to Old Trafford for the final. And there were so many uniforms present in that crowd that it was dubbed the Car Key final. Um, sad, the only sad point is that Sheffield United won 3 0. Um, but that is the only major cup final played in wartime, amazingly. Yeah, and Rick, what's the story with Jack Woodward in that final then? Well, I mentioned that he was uh, one of the Chelsea players who was wounded uh, in battle. And Woodward was one of the finest centre-forwards in world football at the time. And But because of this wound and recuperation, he missed uh, all of the earlier rounds of the, of the cup. But he was fit and available for the final. Um, yet with typical gallantry, he was a seems to be a fantastic human being who later became a director of Chelsea too. Um, Woodward turned down a starting place in favour of one-eyed Bob McNeil, who'd done so much to take the Chelsea team that far. That's very impressive. What a guy. But by then, of course, the war had made it impractical for the Football League to go on. Yeah, there was not just the travel restrictions, but low crowds, the difficulty in obtaining playing personnel and just the the sort of economic attrition meant that the professional game uh, ended in before the 1915-16 season. And after that, it kind of broke down into lots of regional, small-scale competitions with Chelsea playing in the London combination, for instance. Um, but one quite fun aspect was that um, 
players who were billeted, so soldiers or uh, navy men or whatever, away from their their usual place of abode and their form their former club, were allowed to guest for others. And as Chelsea was so close to Aldershot, we got loads of, which was a big army camp. Um, we used to get lots of guest players, including one who starred for us was Charles Buchan, who younger listeners won't know much, but um, he was really influential in football for many decades because not only did he thoroughly enjoy himself at the bridge and actually said he would have stayed on if he'd been offered a contract, but he went on after the war to found the hugely influential Football Monthly magazine in England. Oddly enough, Chelsea ended up owning that briefly uh, in the 1990s, but that's another story. That was my favourite football read as a kid. Absolutely loved Football Monthly. Well, Charlie Buchan, there you go. Charles Buchan's Football Monthly, absolutely. Yeah. It was marvellous. Now, Rick, I know you've researched which players were casualties throughout World War One for a role of honour that's displayed at Stamford Bridge around Remembrance Day. Yeah, and obviously it's, we, it's difficult, uh, even using the best family history research techniques, it's difficult to account for every player and their whereabouts during two world wars. But we do have a list um, of those who paid the ultimate price for doing what they felt was right for their country uh, in World War I. And um, they are George Kennedy, George Lake, Frank O'Hara, Phil Smith, Bob Pompom Whiting, Arthur Wildman, Thomas Wilson, and Norman Wood. They were all past or serving players who were killed in the conflict. Also, three club directors lost sons or daughters. Fred Parker's daughter, who was a nurse, was killed during the Great War. And there were wounded too, of course. And Andy Wilson, who in the 1920s was a brilliant striker and captain of the club, um, performed superbly for us, despite not having the use of one arm as a result of a World War I wound. That's amazing. Now, Rick, you mentioned Jules Lake, the only serving Chelsea first-teamer we know to have been killed in, first world, mm -hmm. in the First World War. That's right. After the break, we'll be hearing his story from his great-nephew, ex-footballer Paul Lake. Hi, Paul. How are you doing? Hi, Rick. Very well, thank you. Good. Could you start off by, for people that don't know you, introducing yourself briefly, talking about your career as a footballer and actually what you're doing now in the game yeah sure Rick. so um yeah so my name's paul lake i'm a, a, an ex player with manchester city uh, football club um i was a player throughout the uh, late 80s uh, i uh, suffered um, uh, knee injuries and had to retire and um, retrain as a chartered physiotherapist i've uh, worked in that space across all the divisions um then I, uh, I had to have one knee replaced and one leg straightened due to football injuries. So I then changed tack, um, working as a as an ambassador at Manchester City for the uh, community programmes. And then I was um, headhunted, so to speak, to work with the Premier League. And I've done so for the last ten years. I've been working with the Premier League as an academy support manager, looking after. The, uh, the young players, in particular the scholars, the players that are going to potentially make it, the players that aren't going to make it, that type of thing. So it's been support for those boys on the pitch, off the pitch, football education, alongside training the staff 
Um, we've got probably the most qualified work, uh, coaching workforce in world football. And that's testament to the support of the Premier League, the Football League, and uh, you know other organisations and stakeholders. So yeah, that's um, that's me up to date, Rick. Brilliant! That's such great work, and um, uh, obviously with the Chelsea Academy, knowing that well, I know that sometimes players can young players fall off a cliff at eighteen when they suffer rejection, and anything that can support them through what is uh, such a difficult time is great. Um, before you, we talk about your family history connection with Chelsea, um, do, do you have any dealings with Chelsea's academy through your Premier League work? No, I don't. I'm, I'm based in the north, as you can mm. appreciate. Um, yeah. And obviously, just purely logistical reasons. So obviously, at tournaments and festivals, we'll come across the Chelsea team, the Chelsea players and the Chelsea staff, who are excellent. And uh, it's obviously regarded as being one of the top academies in world football, Chelsea. Mm-hmm. And that's testament to the people, uh, obviously the hard work of Neil Bath and, and all of the staff that have been there. And, and uh, yeah, the success has just continued. So, yeah, it's been a, a fabulous place to to work and, and seeing that from afar. And But you do have, obviously, through your playing career, as you say, in the late 80s, you have a connection with Chelsea, albeit <laughs> being kicked or, or kicking some of the players. And um, so what, can you, what, have you got any memories from your previous encounters, like marking Kerry Dixon and Gordon Jury or coming up against well, yeah. Johnny Bumstead or... <laughs> yeah, I have, I have. It was fascinating playing at the bridge. Um, we actually drew that game 1-1. Clive Allen scored a wonder goal in the last minute of the game, pretty much. Um, but yeah, it was always difficult playing against uh, Speedy and Dixon, who were a real foe of ours. It was fascinating at that time because you had Mark Bright and Ian Wright at, Chel- at the Crystal Palace. Yeah. So you had some formidable uh, strike forces that we had to uh, overcome. And Chelsea went up that season as the uh, the second division champions, which is the championship today. And we went up as runners-up. But, um, yeah, I remember obviously seeing the exciting players like Tony Dorigo as well that were coming through at the time. And mm. Um, mm. Tony was a great player. Shame he didn't, you know, yeah, I didn't know. stay at Chelsea. Moved on. Had a great career. That's right. That's right. And obviously, Pat Nevin was there at the time. So you had lots of exciting footballers. But, uh, yeah, obviously, uh, Speedy and Dixon were, were quite uh, formidable, <laughs> shall we say. Yeah. yeah. So let's get on to your... Uh, the Chelsea link through one of your footballing ancestors. And if I recall correctly, you were watching Match the Day in November 2014. That's right. right. That's right. So it was obviously Remembrance Sunday. It was the Sunday Match of the Day 2, I think they call it, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, before um, it came to the credits, uh, my wife just said, have you got any... uh, any family history uh, from the Second World War, the First World War? And I said, well, <laughs> don't think so. I'm pretty sure we haven't. You know, mm-hmm. my dad never mentioned anything. And then lo and behold, watching the credits and and um, George Lake's name came up. <laughs> and we thought, is that is that a coincidence? Is that just, you know? So we, obviously we uh, decided to uh, research and explore this. And uh, fascinating enough, it turns out that George... Um, was my great uncle. Well, I remember, um, Joe, your wife, who, um, a journalist, of course, contacted me and I'd already researched George, not knowing that there was a connection, you know, with the surname Lake. Um, so I had a big family tree already uh, pri- privately 
up on uh, ancestry.co.uk. And um, so I was able to do a little bit more work with the right. with the family, the gaps that uh, Joe was able to fill on your family history side. And then, um, then of course, we did the making contact with you. You very kindly agreed to take part in our Chelsea TV documentary, Boys in Khaki, Boys in Blue. And what yeah. what was going through your mind at the at back then? Uh, you know, discovering the this link and knowing that there was a, a forebear who was a footballer who'd who'd uh, served in World War One. It, it was obviously initially uh, it was it was strange to 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 recognise this this connection, this individual, uh, and and then to look into uh, to George's life in more detail. Obviously, very proud of the fact that you know he served in the in the First World War, and he was uh, adamant that he wanted to uh, to fight for his country. You know, and and that that takes guts, mm-hmm. uh, and also the fact that you know he did play football, so he was at Manchester City for a while, and although never made it into the first team, he was in the reserves, which is now probably the twenty ones we would call it, wouldn't we? Or you know, yeah. in development squad B yeah. team. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um then um obviously left and and trialed at Chelsea and managed to do the same in the reserves, played one game, I think it was, and then mm-hmm. was obviously um in the squad but not quite at that level. And then obviously he was uh he decided to move elsewhere and and to uh, enter into the war. So uh, yeah, very very uh, proud uh, to be associated with him. To be honest, he's the only uh, the only player we know who was a, a serving Chelsea squad member. And as you say, he did play once for the first team, um, but he was the only serving player to to die in World War One at Chelsea. So he's quite significant in that respect. And I think he was a cyclist, wasn't he, initially when he joined That's up? Right. Which yeah, I don't know if you know much about that role in World War One, but it's a perilous, perilous yeah. thing to take on. Basically, a messenger. Yeah, a messenger exactly. And and you'd you'd also argue that it makes sense. You'd imagine that someone being as yeah. fit as as George, you, it would be <laughs> it would be perfect. And if you see the images of him, he looks quite a slight chap. Yeah. So I would imagine that he'd been really nimble, and and you know he'd be he'd be very very quick. Um, <laughs> But I've seen some. I think it was one of the films that you, you sort of see on the First World War, and and um, you know some of the old footage. And I have seen clips of the cyclists. And you're absolutely right. It is a it's a thankless and a perilous task. Maybe easier to control a bicycle than a horse, though. I mean, <laughs> well, maybe. war bicycle yeah. rather than war horse. But yeah. um, then he joined. Uh, I think when he died. He was in the, a private in the Hampshire regiment, wasn't he? I think mm, just plain right. old. Uh, soldier at, at that time just to clarify george was your your grandfather harold's older brother that's right and uh and you share a middle name with him because he was george andrew, andrew lake right. yeah and your middle yeah. name's andrew as well yeah, and is. um yeah. what have you learned since we spoke all those years ago about george and about his death i mean he died in a battle on uh, uh, trying to take the Sampoas uh, Canal on the sixth of November, nineteen eighteen. Have you have you kind of explored right. that history much more since? Again, just just trying to 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 understand more about what happened. And and I mean, it, you obviously you see lots of the of the of the films, you know, from the sixties, fifties onwards, really, and try to get a sense of an image of of what that must have been like. I mean, I've also been over to uh, Ypres. 
for the uh, the truce, our Premier League truce tournament. Well, that what well, I was going to come on to that. What a coincidence that you had been part of that. I think before you yeah. found a, found out about this personal connection that you had. Tell us about that because that involved youth as well, didn't it? Well, it does, and there's another truce tournament um, uh, this this year. So basically, um, we have an, an under twelves program where all of the category one Premier League academies are, are invited, and they'll play tournaments um, across the country. So the Northern teams are based at uh, RAF Cosford mm-hmm. and, and then there'll be, um, you know, sort of other games across um, towards the South and uh, over towards Portsmouth as well. So I think it's the RAF, the Army and the Navy sort of sites are mm-hmm. involved. And basically what happens is that each of the, uh, of the teams will do some research around the players that have played for their teams that were also involved in the war. And they're also asked to create uh, their own version of the poppy and to do Mm -hmm. some research around um, the, the area and the city and, 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 and what that must have felt like. And um, it's fascinating the amount of players that have, that have been researched, that have um, played and obviously gone to serve for their countries and what will happen is that the boys will uh, all meet uh, at these sites so at Cosford as an example the teams will line up there'll be two boys selected one will read out a poem mm-hmm. and then one will read out the list of the the players that 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 fought in the first world war some that died and some that made it through uh, and then and there'll be a reef laid by all the teams uh, then there'll be um some um, memories from the the servicemen uh, based at those sites. There mm-hmm. will be the last post. Then there'll be a football tournament. Then the, the top five teams will then be selected across the country. So there'll be um, winners across uh, all of the sites. The winners will then go through and play in what's known as the Truce Tournament over in, in Ypres in Belgium. Mm-hmm. And that will be against French sides, Belgian sides, and German sides. And there will be a, a gathering where all the boys will go together. They'll finish, they'll, they'll visit the, the the Commonwealth grave sites, the German grave sites. There will be a meal in the evening where the boys, two boys from each team, will sit with two boys from a French team, a Belgian team, a German team. They will swap gifts. They will have some kind of communication. There's also Rick. There's a, a reenactment of um, of <laughs> the, the truce. truce. Game. <laughs> yeah, so there's a reenactment of that actually uh, on the site, and you'll get guys that are dressed up, and there'll be a French guy, German guy, English guy on either side. They'll be chatting to each other. They'll come together. They'll swap cigarettes and gifts, that type of thing. Then the following day, the football tournament will begin, and the finals will be uh, uh, the very next day. So it's really well thought out. It's a really lovely experience, but it gives the boys a real insight into, you know, their players. And then you'll go and almost represent your clubs when you go over to Belgium. But it's a real way of understanding. It's a real educational uh, experience. And the boys, the staff absolutely love it. It's probably our flagship uh, tournament, actually. Wow. I mean, I was chuckling away there inappropriately, given the circumstances, but it's in recognition of the kind of the extent of the thoroughness uh, of this, of the approach, really a, a kind of holistic approach to, uh, and it shows the good work that Premier League clubs are doing with educating 
nurturing young talent as people as well as as footballers, which is uh, which is really good. And I wanted to ask you, uh, given that um, the time uh, that your ancestor George Lake died uh, in terms of the war um, and where. And I wondered whether you studied any of the war poets at, when you were at school in English and whether you had any reflections on the fact that, as you know, one of the great war poets, Wilfred Owen, was killed in the same battle as your great uncle and yeah. both died so close to the cease, ceasefire, like less than a week uh, before the ceasefire, where they could have survived and led full lives. If you reflected much on that well i i have and 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 uh speaking to because i have two older brothers as well uh michael and david and michael played football for sheffield united and wrexham david played semi-professionally for teams like Curzon ashton and uh and draws and hyde united teams like that um so we've had a chat about it really yeah and and i mean obviously the, the the main poets um were, were also um siegfried sassoon yeah and and um, those poems and poets uh, of of such uh, ilk and standing are obviously uh, recognised when you reflect on the on the war and the, and and that type of uh, of poetry. But it was just fascinating that uh, that link uh, of of um, of Wilfred Owen uh, obviously dying uh, at the same battle, mm. and and the fact that the shared experience that you know you're you're reading about a shared experience in those exactly. lines. And the fact that, that that George was fatally wounded, but actually, um, as the war had ended, you know, he died. Was it a couple of days later? So it was, yeah. you know, it was really, really sad. And and um, you know, I, again, trying to get a sense of what that must have felt like at the time, you know, and what his thoughts must have been. One moment he was playing football and mm -hmm. thinking about trying to get into Chelsea's first team, and the next minute he was facing the Germans. You know, uh, all over the world, and then coming back to France um, later uh, as a, you know, an army, um, so, as a soldier, and uh, trying to see the war out. And um, obviously, learning about George, George, George's experience and uh, life cut short at just twenty nine. I mean, that's it's no age, is it? As as we say, but. Now that's just two years older than when you formally retired from football, and mm. has that led you to re again to reappraise things in your own life and give perspective? I think it naturally does. We all, we kind of all think about um, you know our our mortality, if you will, and and mm -hmm. and we we know from the wars across the world how how cheap life can be perceived, um, and. It does give you that moment to reflect and just to think, you know, how how we don't necessarily at times really value, you know, our life and our opportunity and 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 you know what we have achieved and what we're still able to achieve and and you know, the wonderful things about life, you know, and, and be and to be grateful and thankful every day. And, mm -hmm. and and I suppose it it takes moments like this, and obviously a remembrance Sunday, and and all when we have you know family, friends, and colleagues that pass away, you know you, you do tend to reflect more about that. But again, it, it it's really sad um, that that people's lives were cut so short, and and life was so cheap. You know, it just it, it's unfathomable to be faced with the horrors 
of the First World War, and we see some of the images in the old footage, and uh, it's a, it's no wonder there were so many people that were just so traumatized by the war. Absolutely anyway, right. They got through it or not. It was just just absolutely horrendous, and that so many people that have been in the war have basically buried those those images and those experiences and just haven't spoken about it. You know, we don't know really how lucky we are, do we, Rick? No, and it was supposed to be the war to end all wars. Sadly, not the case. Um, maybe it's time to update your acclaimed autobiography, I'm Not Really Here, Paul. Maybe you should add another chapter as you're embarking on the, uh, a new chapter in your life and put that into perspective. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we, we, Joe and I have spoken about this and, and maybe that's something in the future. There are some things, there are a couple of chapters that we didn't actually include, so that's <laughs> potentially something, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, would be, it would be nice. It would be something pleasurable to uh, to write about uh, about the life of George. Yeah, it's really, really, it fills you with, with, uh, with sadness, but also with a lot of pride. Well, thanks so much for sharing this sad chapter in your family history, Paul, and all the best and with your career going forward. Thanks a lot for talking to us. Thanks, Rick. Cheers, then. Now, what a lovely fella. I really liked how the way he was so invested in that tournament, and you can tell that part of his strategy is not just to turn out footballers, but to turn out rounded individuals, and I think that came through really strongly. He's such a, a thoughtful man. I mean, I've I've known him uh, for eight years or so, and um, he's on a a journey himself and it's really fascinating to hear as you say how thoughtful he is and and what a superb approach he takes the other thing is and a big klaxon sound should happen now for a famous cfc exclusive uh, uh, uh. <laughs> is that <any> good <laughs> that sounded like a duck <laughs> um off mic paul revealed to me that when he was working towards his therapy qualifications at Macclesfield Town around 2004 guess who was left back there no Graham Potter the Graham Potter the Graham Potter wow before he had his wand and Paul said it was clear even then that Graham was one of those very intelligent and thoughtful players who was always destined to become a great coach so there we have it, a CFC exclusive. Exclusive, I like that. Now, Rick, just to close off our World War One timeline, how soon mm. did Football League resume again after the 1918 armistice? Well, as as soon as practicable, really. Um, of course, uh, we know that the armistice happened in November 1918, and the next start, feasible start, was August 1919. So that's what happened. Um and that's a, a really landmark season for Chelsea because we probably had the biggest home attendances on average at Stamford Bridge across the whole world. I've never seen any club anywhere that had bigger attendances than us. So we're absolutely huge. Um, but even before then, um, Chairman Claude Kirby had come up with a brilliant idea of a London Victory Cup uh, to celebrate the end of the war. And... Thankfully, Chelsea won the final at Highbury on the 19th of April 1919 with 36,000 people there to see Fulham beaten 3-0. We did have some guest players, uh, but including some from Arsenal. But so having full football's corner in wartime like we've just described 
the pensioners earn the first dividend of peacetime. You've been listening to the famous CFC podcast with me, Gary Barone, and him, Rick Lanville, with very special thanks to guest Paul Lake. Now, if you liked it, please tell your friends and family, rate us and subscribe on whichever app you're using and help us promote Chelsea's heritage. In the meantime, fly up, pensioners. Pensioners.